Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Tonight we're in chapter 10. Next week will be hump day. We'll be halfway. 11 chapters, there's 22 in the book. Chapter number 10. This is a short chapter, but it's a very important chapter. And uh, I gotta get make sure I get on this stool and don't miss it. <laughs> no, no, I, I think this might work better. I found uh, I I wish I could sleep later in the morning. I don't know why, but I'm one of those early birds. I get up between four and four thirty every day, and I I wish I could sleep longer. And I can't do anything with the chickens now, with the days getting shorter till about 6.15. But it gives me some time to do my devotions and Bible study, so my mind's better in the morning. Uh, aren't you glad to hear that? <laughs> All right, Revelation chapter 10, and this chapter's title is the mighty angel with the little book. The mighty angel with the little book. Let's begin by looking at verse number one. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Now this chapter, there's a lot of uh, disagreement between Bible scholars, and I mean good Bible scholars, um, conservative, independent, Bible-believing people. Uh, Dr. Harry Ironside and... um, I can't remember off the top of my head too, too much. Uh, but I do remember he was in the list of those who hold the position that this angel here is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are other good Bible scholars, um, many of them, my favorite, as you've heard me say, is John MacArthur. Not John MacArthur. Uh, John MacArthur's a good Bible scholar, but it's not John MacArthur by any means. I have some dis- serious disagreements with him. But John Walford is the one I was trying to say. He holds a different position. That's the position I hold, and that is that this is just another angel. And I want to take you back to John's Gospel to begin with in chapter 14 of John's Gospel and I'll show you that perhaps the strongest argument as I see to say that this is not Christ while you're turning here John chapter 14 we're going to be looking at verse number 15 but Let me read again the first part of verse 1 of chapter 10 of Revelation. And I saw another mighty angel. 
That word another is a qualifying word. It's a very definite word. If you look here in John, this is when Christ was speaking to his disciples. This is the longest discourse that Christ gives in the scriptures, John 14 through 17. But in verse 15 he says, If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that ye may abide with you, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now this is the passage of Christ preparing his disciples for his departure. His crucifixion is about to happen very shortly. And he's assuring them that if when he goes, God the Father is going to send another comforter. Another comforter. Just like him. And that's the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. So that's perhaps one of the strongest positions that I can go to that would, would uh, teach that this is not Christ, but just another angel. Now, chapter 10 is a parenthesis. It goes all the way up through chapter uh, 11, verse 15. And uh, we're going to be hearing different things that will not advance the narrative as far as the judgments that go that we're studying. We've studied already the seal judgments and six of the trumpet judgments. We have but one to go and then the seven vial judgments, which are the last uh, judgments. This thing here doesn't fit me. I'm going to have to ride. No, no, I'm going to... I'm going to learn how to saddle this thing. I just get one. No, I'm I'm going to be fine. If I fall down, it's not that far down. Believe me, I fall two or three times a day, so <laughs> I'll be used to it. All right, uh, being a parenthesis, it's like it was back in the seals. You remember between the sixth and the seventh seal, there was a parenthesis in chapter seven where we read about the 144,000 who were sealed. Those are the only ones that are talked about being sealed, or the 144,000. And about the great number of converts that they have from their ministry is in chapter 7. Here we have several different narratives. This one here about uh, that we read about here is the uh, the little book that John eats, as we'll see. Now, <laughs> who who then would be these this angel? Uh, I don't know why we trouble ourselves in trying to worry about something like that. God, if he would would have thought it was of that importance, he would have told us who it was. But we like to sometimes ask questions that we don't need to ask. But um, in case you are inquisitive, I'll give you my opinion. 
uh, is only one of two. It could be, I believe, would be Michael or Gabriel, uh, one of the two. Now, a couple of reasons. Let me say this before I give you that. Uh, a couple of reasons uh, for some expositors stating that this is the Lord Jesus Christ is that the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Jehovah, as a common title for Christ in the Old Testament. You don't find him represented as an angel in the New Testament, but you do in the Old Testament. In fact, go back to Genesis chapter number 6 and we'll see the first place that, um, or chapter 16 rather, Genesis 16 and look at verse number 7. Genesis 16, verse 7 says, In the angel of the Lord, there is the first reference to Christ. This is called a Christophanes, uh, uh, oftentimes by Bible students. Uh, But if you notice the angel of the Lord, and you notice how the Lord is spelt there with all capitals, that's referring to Jehovah uh, the Lord's not always spelt with all capitals, as you know. But in the cases where it's referring to Jehovah, it is. And this is the angel of the Lord. That's one of the titles that Christ uh, is, uh, has in the Old Testament when he appears in a Christophanes. In other words, uh, he appears in bodily form, or in this case as an angel, uh, before his incarnation, before he was physically born, he appeared, and there's others where they argue just what he looked like and how old he was and all that. Uh, we're not getting into that kind of stuff. But uh, in any case, it's the angel of the Lord mentioned here. And so they use that for one of the reasons that they say this is Christ. And then also that he's clothed with a cloud And we know that this is a well-known badge of Jehovah's presence. In the Old Testament, the cloud appeared by day and the fire by night as as they were, as Israel were moving during the 40 years of wandering. And uh, his presence was noted with a cloud. However, this angel has been uh, given uh, grace. Uh, He's been given a rainbow. He, he has a, a face like the sun. He has the judgment uh, uh, shown as fire, and so um, this is not this is not Christ. This is a further an angel. Furthermore, the evidence seems to support the idea that this is a holy angel, and whom has been given great power and great authority. It says again. Another mighty angel. This is not just a low-ranking angel. This is a very powerful angel. And, uh, and we see that very clearly here. And, and then this angel comes down from heaven. Now that's a, that would be another proof that this would not be Christ. Uh, no, no scripture tells us anything about Christ coming down to the earth during the tribulation period. He comes at the end of the tribulation period. And this is in the midst of the tribulation period. 
and there's no scripture that says that he comes down from heaven, but this angel is said here to come down from heaven, and uh, so that's another proof. Now, uh, chapter 12, when we get there, Michael is mentioned, and he's, of course, the archangel, uh, and he is referenced because he's the most powerful angel that we have record of. Now, Personally, I believe there were three uh, mighty angels. Satan was one, and uh, Michael, and then Gabriel. I believe they were all of equal rank. Now, you can say what you want, and there's no, can't be dogmatic about that. But I say that because Satan fell and led a third of the angels with him. And there's two-thirds that are remaining good angels. And I believe they're under the command of Michael and Gabriel. And Gabriel has much to do with the New Testament saints. And Michael, the Old Testament uh, saints. And remember, this tribulation period is in the Old Testament economy. This is under that fifth dispensation. The parentheses on your prophecy charts, which show you the sixth dispensation, the age we live in, the age of the church, uh, that's as, as always shown as a parenthesis because it's, it could be taken out and the Old Testament and the tribulation could go right together because it's dealing with the Jews. It's dealing with the Jewish people. And so here we, we see Michael's mentioned there in chapter 12. That's why I, I say myself that it, this is Michael. Uh, here. Uh, It's not Gabriel. I believe it's Michael. Now, um, there's no clear evidence that his function, uh, as we read it in Scripture, is any different than any other angel. And so, um, he's he's doing the, the work of an angel, which, of course, is a messenger. That's what an angel is, a messenger of God. His description here, it says he's clothed with a cloud... That talks about authority. He has great authority and has a rainbow upon his head. That's grace. Uh, that uh, the the uh, emblem that God gave and in the sky today to remind us that He's promised that He would never again destroy the earth with water, and it's by His grace that He doesn't because uh, we we certainly don't deserve uh, that good behavior. Now, his, his face is described as glorious as the sun. That's speaking of power. This is an angel who has grace, has authority, has great power, and his feet are compared to pillars of fire. Fire, speaking of judgment. This angel has a, a message of judgment, as many of the angels in uh, Revelation have. So here we have his feet, his right foot is upon the sea, and his left foot is upon the earth. Um, that's in the next uh, verse, I believe, uh, verse 2. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot upon the earth. And so this shows his uh, area of ministry 
area that God has got complete sovereign over all things. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. So that's his description. He has authority over all the earth that's given to him in his duty here. Now, um, the primary importance of this chapter is not this angel. Though many verses talk about him, gives him description. The, the main important about this book is the is the little word is the little book that he has been given here. And this we find through chapters two through four. He had in his hand a little book open. Notice this little book is open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things. And by the way, it's the only place you'll find in a book of Revelation anything sealed up. Things are opened here. Uh, Daniel's book that he had to seal is, is explained in this book. And, and the seals are open and the judgments are open. But here he's to seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. So this requires a little bit of uh, uh, discourse here. Uh, as to what is this book and what are the contents. I believe it has a, a really a twofold meaning as I study this. Uh, of course, we readily would identify this to be representative of the Word of God, and it is. But it also, it noticed that this little book is open. I think this angel was given that seven-sealed book that Christ had and opened the seven seals and gives it to him as more or less his marching orders, his uh, written authority for the mission that God was sending him on. This, in other words, is the title deed to the earth. This is showing rightful ownership. Not only did God create the earth, but he redeemed it. Satan took possession, as we've stated before, at the fall of man in the garden, Satan became the prince and the power of the air. And uh, he has control over this world. But he's not going to always have control. He has control today. And uh, that's why this world, you know, we, we want to sing about it. That this world's not our home. It's Satan's home, but it's not our home. And we're just passing through. Now, uh, this book, um, I believe, uh, again, oh, is the Word of God as well. The content of this little book is, is nowhere revealed uh, in Revelation. We have uh, no uh, detailed explanation of the, what the content is. And so that's why some would maybe hold solely to it being representative of the Word of God. And others would say, well, no, it's... Uh, it is the title deed of the earth, uh, this sealed book that Christ opened and has given it to this angel. Both have very good arguments, and uh, 
and I hold, you know, with two opinions. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to say uh, one's over the other. Uh, there's two opinions here. But uh, the seven thunders, notice what it's saying there, that these seven thunders, uh, they, can, uh, they contain a revelation consisting of some uh, articulate... Uh, order or lesson or message uh, John heard him he understood him he was about to write it down and so he must have heard exactly explicitly what this uh, these thunders were now the only problem is uh, he was ordered to seal it up and and not to uh, uh, or not to write it not to record it. And so uh, anybody that would try to tell you or teach a lesson on what the seven thunders mean or what it states or teaches, uh, you just mark it down. They don't know what they're talking about. They're just making it up. And you say, would anybody do that? Well, the seven Adventist Adventist churches will. They believe they know what these seven thunders mean and they tell you what they mean. Now they, I don't see how they can when God says to John, you know, John saw it. He knew what he wrote. He knew what he heard, but he was not permitted to write it. That's not unique, by the way. Uh, we know over in the uh, book of Second Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse Paul, uh, verse 4, where Paul was caught up into heaven. You remember the, the account? He was caught up into heaven and he was forbidden to write the things which he had witnessed there. There are some things that God doesn't intend for us to know, at least not at this time. Now, he might some other day, but not now. And so... Uh, Somebody would say, well, you need to study that and find out what those seven thunders uh, mean. No, I'm not going to study it because I'm not going to waste my time. I don't have a lot of years left. (laughs) Roger and I are counting the days. (laughs) And so we're not going to waste it on doing something that God says that we can't do it. We can't do it. And by the way, for the Seventh-day Adventists or anybody else that would say they could they need to go back and read Revelation chapter 22 verses 18 and 19 where the warning is given about adding to or taking from the Word of God. You can't do that, folks. If you do, you're, you're going to be in trouble. And uh, you, don't, you don't dare want to be uh, on the outs with God because you're going to be on the short end of the stick, I guarantee you. The announcement of the end of the age here Verses 5 through 7, notice what it says. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and and he swore by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things uh, that uh, uh, therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there... There should be uh, time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, 
the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. Now here are some interesting scriptures. And uh, it, notice here, and by the way, this is a, another proof that it's not Christ. Uh, this this uh, is an angel who takes an oath to God. He raises his hand up, which is was custom in that day, and I suppose practiced still today by some, by taking an oath and taking it in God's name. An oath is always taken in the name of a more powerful person. You don't take an oath of a subordinate. You take an oath of a higher power. Okay? Now, the reason this is not Christ, now you need to go to the scriptures here, in Hebrews, notice what it says in Hebrews chapter number 6, and beginning in verse number 13, it says, For when God made promise to Abraham, in other words, he made an oath to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. If this had been Christ, he would have just swore by himself. But this being an angel, he swore by God, okay? Saying, surely blessings I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had um, patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability, that means unchangeable, without the possibility of changing, of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we ought to have strong consolation we have uh, um, fled for refuge to uh, lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of our soul, or of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Rather, the forerunner is for us, entered in. Even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here God says, clearly, he swore to Abraham by himself because he could swear by none higher. And this angel takes an oath to God. This is a very solemn oath. Uh, Attention is called to the special character uh, of the authority of God over the earth as the one who lives forever and as the one who created all things in heaven and in earth. There's no room for evolution in this, in this book you read, I guarantee you. It's time no more. The, the statement there in verse 16, time no more, it's talking about a, a period of time in question here. It doesn't mean there'll be no more time. It means that there'll be... Uh, uh, that there will be no more delay in the judgments that are about to fall. The end is not to be consummated. 
Uh, and remember that the seventh trumpet that we're about to study in chapter 11, and is referenced here uh, in these verses, but this uh, seventh trumpet and the seventh vowel happened with, under the sixth seal. Look at your little chart, you'll see that. In eternity, there will be a time of relationship and that one event will follow another, but there will be uh, an end of time. It's eternity. There's no end. Time has a beginning and time has an end, but time in eternity has no end. Now, it says here in verse 7, it says referring to that seventh trumpet, now this trumpet we've been reading about, this, uh, this mighty angel we've been reading about thus far, uh, this is a different angel. This seventh angel, the seventh trumpet that's sounding is talking about the one that we're going to be studying in chapter 11, verse 15 and following. But uh, it talks about the mystery of God and that is the secret of you know, why, why does God allow Satan uh, to, to rule and do what he pleases and man to do what he pleases? Uh, you know, it's a wonder that evil prospers and good uh, is always trodden underfoot. But that's the way it is in this world. It's going to be that way in this world. Uh, by his servant, the prophets... Here he's referring to the prophet, uh, prophets prophesying the, uh, the um, millennial reign of Christ. When this tribulation ends, this time begins. When Christ will reign for a thousand years on the throne of David, uh, that, that, that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And uh, so we see this uh, referenced here. The seventh trumpet is the end of this age. As I said, the seventh trumpet, the seventh vow is in the sixth seal. When you read those all, all those verses that describe those judgments, you'll see that it's talking about the same time. It's talking about the end of the tribulation. It's talking about the time when Christ comes and the battle of Armageddon and the uh, setting up of his kingdom here on earth will happen. Now, the important part of the verse begins in verse 8 down through 11, this little book, and it says, And the voice which I heard from heaven speak un, uh, unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which uh, standeth uh, upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall, be to thy, it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. Now, what's it talking about here? Well, this, this of course, uh, is a, um, what, what am I trying to say here? 
this is a very uh, serious section here, really, of the book. This is what this chapter is all about. And the, and the voice, uh, this, this is the same voice from heaven that you hear recorded in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, come up hither. This is God Almighty. This is God the Father speaking to John. And John is eating this little book. This should uh, compare to uh, a passage in the Old Testament. Go back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, one of the great prophets, uh, prophets of the scriptures. And you find in Ezekiel, you find there in, in Ezekiel chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, and verse number 9, the last two verses of chapter 2, and then we'll read the first three verses of chapter 3. This is one of the places where, you know, man put these divisions in the Bible for us. I thank the Lord for them, but uh, being man, they're not infallible, and this is one that would have been better not to end it in chapter in verse 10, but to end it in uh, verse 3 of the next chapter. Listen to what it says in verse 9. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent up to me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread, and he, and he uh, uh, spread it before me, and it was written within and without, and there was written therein lamentations and mournings and woe, bitter. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat, and thou findest, and thou findest, eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he ceased, excuse me, he caused me to eat uh, that roll, and he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy uh, bowels with the roll that I give thee, then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Uh, that's a similar prophecy. Uh, this is something that the Jewish people would have known something about this and had heard this uh, from Ezekiel. The meaning of John eating this little book is not given in scriptures. It's not spelled out exactly. Uh, why or why, uh, how he ate it, but uh, it does tell us uh, lessons uh, that without uh, without giving a, 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 a description, he he appropriates the statements and promises and, uh, and affirmations contained in the book, and we're of course taught in the New Testament how that. We are to feed on the Word of God. We're, a man does not live by bread alone, the Bible tells us. Uh, we're to eat, in other words, take in the Word of God. The little book is a symbol, therefore, of the Word of God. Uh, to John, the Word of God is sweet. Sweet in that it is the Word of promise. It's the Word of grace that we have, the, the revelation of the love of God. Uh, tells us uh, that God loves us for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We know that from scriptures. And uh, uh, the basis of of our fellowship is spelled out in there, how we can have fellowship with God.
how we have hope of glory based on the scripture. So it's sweet in many ways. On the other hand, it's bitter. Uh, the aspect uh, of being bitter is shown in the persecution, that, for instance, that John himself is going through. Uh, he is being persecuted. He's there in exile on the Isle of Patmos, separated from his family and his friends, from his church. And he's there suffering. It's it's also bitter in that he not only uh, uh, contains the promises of grace, but it also contains in the book of Revelation the, the reveals of the divine judgments of God. God is a loving God, but God is a judging God. And so it's both sweet and bitter. Uh, the God who created the the heavens and the earth, he also prepared the lake of fire for the devil and his angels. And the Bible says it's been enlarged so that it might take those who refuse Christ as their personal savior. There's no salvation plan for the devil or the angels. Uh, when they fell, they fell. That's it. Their, their state is fixed, eternal. But man had the choice. He chose to reject Christ so God enlarged the capacity of hell that it might consume them as well. And we'll study about that when we get in chapter number 20. I like what it teaches in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. The word of God, you know, is sharp. Sharper than any two-edged sword, it says. And uh, of course we know uh, how we can apply that. Uh, the sweet message of deliverance. Uh, again, John 3.16 is found there in, the, in that beautiful book. Uh, and bitter, the bitter message of damnation is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. Uh, we have to realize that there, uh, there are some things in, in the Bible that are bitter. As sweet as honey, uh, in the words of Moses, uh, when he wrote the first promise of the Savior in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the seed of the woman. That's the very first promise of the Messiah. And uh, that's a very sweet thing. It was sweet to the Apostle Paul when he uh, taught about salvation by grace not by works of righteousness, but by grace or saved through faith. That's sweet, sweet things. It's sweet to you and I. Uh, we have the promise of salvation in the scriptures. How sweet that is. The blessings that comes as a child of God, the peace that we have, the peace that the Bible says passes all understanding. This world's in a very troubled time, and our country is a very troubled time. There's not much peace in this world. And as the pastor says, there'll be no peace until the Prince of Peace comes. Uh, it's just going to get worse and worse. We have peace. We have wealth. We're actually the child, children of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. Amen. And you're, you can't claim to be a pauper and be a Christian. Not when your, your, your father 
is is uh, is God Almighty, the Creator of all things. Jesus is the um, the uh, Prince of Princes, the King of Kings. Uh, heaven is our home. Rewards are waiting for those who have served the Lord. No wonder the songwriter put it this way: "It is sweet to know." as we onward go, the way of the cross leads home. There's a lot of sweet things in the Bible for the child of God. And as John ate this book, perhaps those things enumerated through his mind, and he thought of all the blessings he has as a child of God, but then bitter too. Bitter also because... Uh, to bitter John again as he's suffering persecution, as he's writing this book that we're studying tonight uh, from an isolated prison camp, uh, actually an island that was made into a prison. That's what Patmos was. It was a desolate place, a very hard place. And there he was suffering. Uh, thinking perhaps of his loved ones that were not saved knowing that they're going to end up in hell if they don't get saved. Bitter. Bitter to people like you and I. When we think about how many of us here tonight, there's probably not a one here tonight that doesn't have some loved one who, if they're not saved, you seriously doubt they know the Lord. And God only knows. And... And we pray that, their, that their loved ones would certainly be saved. You think of your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids and your in-laws and even the outlaws in your family. You wouldn't want to go to hell. And so it's, a bitter, it's bitter. It's bitter to, to people uh, who have loved ones who are not saved. Uh, but as it was in Noah's day, you know, Noah's day, there was only eight souls that were saved from that pre-Adamic flood. Think of that. Eight. Of all the thousands, millions that were living, hundred over a hundred years, 120 years he preached. The judgment of God is coming. Get right with God. They laughed and made fun of him. Today, Fundamental preachers and Bible teachers in person and on the radio and in the, on the airways is, are giving out the gospel when people are mocking him and making fun, belittling, looking down on him. They did Noah the same way. You know what happened? God put Noah in, in the ark and then God shut the door. He couldn't trust Noah. You know, Noah would have probably been like you or I, had some family out there, would have let him in the side door, but you couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. God shut the door. And there was no hope from that time on. I think perhaps the most bitter thing about hell, I preached often and I pastored on the subject of hell. You say, you're one of those hellfire brimstone preachers. Yes, I am, just like Jesus. Jesus preached more on hell than he did about heaven. 
you can't be a preacher of the Word of God and not preach on hell. And I've preached on hell from every way and means that I could see in Scripture to warn people that they not go there. You know, one of the saddest things about hell, we know in Luke where we read the, the account that Jesus gives of an actual account of a rich man who died and went to hell. And in hell, he lifted up his eyes in torment. Hell's a suffering place. Weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Not for a year or 10,000 years, but for eternity. What a terrible thing. And to have an opportunity and end up in hell. How bad would that be? You know, I, I would preach and I would close the message on saying one of the, the, the worst thing I believe a person will experience in hell. And we know that passage tells us they, they thirst, they, they, they're dying of thirst, they're begging for a drop of water. They're, they're, they're concerned about their loved ones. The worst thing about hell is a memory. Did you know that? People that go to hell, I believe, will remember every prayer they heard a godly mother pray for them. I told you before I was raised in a Christian home. And as a young man growing up, I would come in after dark, you know, I had a curfew about 10 o'clock, I think it was back then. And I was to begin. Oftentimes, I would come in, and in the stillness, sometimes all the other family, I presume, was in bed sleeping, and there was nobody around. They're quiet, and I was just coming in as quiet as I could be and slip in my bed, and I'd hear something, and I'd listen, and it'd be my mother praying for her kids, her family, her friends, her relatives, people in the church that was on their prayer list. She would go down a list. And I thought, how terrible it would be for a person to turn their back on God and go to hell and have that haunting memory. I tell you, friends, if you have a relative or a friend that is not saved, you need to do everything you possibly can. That's why God gives us this passage of Revelation. This is, we're we're in heaven. We're not going to suffer these things. But God wants us to know about them. He's promised a blessing if you'll read them and study them and know what he's saying here. Because if you do, you'll get a burden in your heart for your loved ones. A memory in hell is a terrible thing to have. I look forward to next week as we uh, go to our next study. And uh, we go, in fact, we we have several uh, personages that we're going to be looking at uh, in the... um, weeks to come and I'm back in Luke trying to find what I want to say. I'll never find it there.
the two witnesses, along with the 144,000, there are two witnesses. Witnesses. 